Hey guys, David Reeves here. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast today. Hope you enjoy. And remember, you can catch a new episode every Wednesday at noon central on all your streaming devices. Most of these podcasts have visuals, so if you want to see the entire video, check them out at creationsuperstore.com. They're available on DVD or digital download. All right, let's get to it. Hello, I'm David Reeves, host of Wonders Without Number. In each episode, we talk about breaking discoveries in science, which reveal that our Creator, the God of the Bible, has left a pattern of His fingerprints throughout the universe. Check out our other resources at davidreeves.com. Sign up for email updates to have encouraging nuggets sent straight to your inbox. Subscribe to our free monthly magazine and like us on Facebook for daily inspiration and education regarding science and the Bible. How was the Grand Canyon formed? Was it formed by a lot of water over a short period of time? Or long periods of time and a little Colorado River carving it out? We'll find out the answers to these questions and more on Wonders Without Number. Welcome to Wonders Without Number. I'm your host, David Reeves, and today we want to inform and inspire you regarding all of the things that we find around us, an infinite number of wonders that point us directly back to our Creator, the God of the Bible. Now, today we want to talk about the Grand Canyon and the grand formation of that canyon. But before we do that, let's take a look at this week's Heavens Declare. If I asked you to name an African animal, you'd probably answer elephant right away. This mammal, the largest land mammal alive, is one of the more well-known African animals, and rightly so. Its large size, long trunk, floppy ears, and baggy skin certainly make it a memorable sight to anyone who has seen one. Though elephants are usually associated with Africa, only one species lives there, the African elephant. The other species is the Asian elephant, and you can probably figure out where that one lives. It's easy to tell the difference between these two species with just a glance. The most obvious is size. You see, Asian elephants are noticeably smaller than their African kin. Asian elephants also have ears that are straight on the bottom, while African elephants have the fan-shaped ears that we usually associate with elephants. Asian elephants have four back toes. African elephants only have three. I'm filming this video on location in South Africa where populations of elephants live. I've seen their trunk at work and it's amazing. Their trunks can be up to seven feet long and weigh in at 400 pounds. African elephants also have two fingers on the end of their trunks that they can use to pick up things. Asian elephants only have one, so they, they wrap their trunk around objects to pick them up. As the largest living land animal today, the elephant does remind us of God's power and his ability to create. He designed everything, including the mighty elephant. I'm David Reeves in South Africa. Truly, the heavens declare the glory of God. And now it's time to meet my guest, James Gardner with Canopy Ministries. 
Tell me just a little bit about your ministry. Well, we've been teaching the truth of God's creation for well over 20 years now in a secondary role, kind of a below the radar screen role for ICR and for the, uh, the obviously the Institute for Creation Research and for Answers in Genesis. Have had a lot of fun doing it, have had a lot of opportunity to meet, meet a lot of the scientists that do some of the actual scientific investigation and work and have learned a ton from those people. Well, now speaking of the Asian elephants that we just saw in the previous roll-in, uh, you've, you've seen those in person before, right? Oh yeah, when I was uh, two years old, my parents became missionaries to Thailand and we were there until I was 12 wow. in 1962. And on multiple occasions outside of the little house where we were living, especially in a town called Royet, we would have people come by on Asian elephants. Mm. And of course, being a, a kind of a freak, you know, only white kid, except for my brothers within, you know, 100 miles, they would stop and then they would have the elephant raise its knee and we would be pulled up on top and, wow. and get to ride on them. And uh, so it, it was fun. It was just part of life as a missionary kid. Yes. Uh, get to do that stuff. Didn't have to pay to do it either. <laughs> That's so, but you know, the diversity of animals around the world is so incredible and so well designed for their habitats, right? Right. But then we look at the rocks around the world and they also, they can't tell us their history. They can't tell us this story, but they, we can infer things by studying those rocks. And when we study the rocks at the Grand Canyon, some things become very obvious, don't they? They, they do. Uh, some not so obvious, some obvious. But part of the problem with this whole issue of, of, of Grand Canyon and a lot of the other evidences that people talk about supporting millions of years of evolution is really addressing the question, is evolution true science while special creation is only religion? Well, no, they are both religious worldviews. As a matter of fact, I like talking about a quote by Dr. Richard Bozar. He said, Christianity has fought, still fights, and will fight science to the desperate end over evolution because evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroy Adam and Eve and the original sin, mm -hmm. and in the rubble you will find the sorry remains of the Son of God. Wow. If you take away the meaning of Jesus' death, you see, if Jesus was not the Redeemer that died for our sins, and of course that's what evolution means, mm -hmm. then Christianity is nothing. Wow. And this guy, years ago, decades ago, understood that evolution and creation were diabolically, diametrically, if you want, opposed, opposed worldviews. And so in looking at all of this stuff, you know, they, they talk about Grand Canyon, they talk about fossils. I like to ask a simple question, when do fossils exist? Well, they exist in the present. Hmm. You or I, in spite of trying many times to go back and look at fossils, you can't go back in the past and look at fossils. You so, see them as they are yeah, currently. They, we're seeing them as they are currently. And so we essentially are looking at them in the present. Okay. And so you have to interpret those fossils based on one of these two worldviews, either the evolutionary worldview or the biblical worldview. Now, looking at those two worldviews, you really have the biblical worldview teaching that there are no transitional forms, that everything, every kind was formed and created 
in full right from the beginning. Evolution, on the other hand, teaches that there should be millions of transitional fossils, and these things are supposed to be evolving upward all the time. But how do you address when people say that you invoke a god of the gaps? That you only say, well, if there's a question in science that you don't fully understand, yeah, well, but, but God did it. Whereas evolution has all of these facts and they have a way of explaining everything. How do you address that? Well, the key word you just used is facts. Evolution doesn't have all these facts. Okay. What they have is speculation and guesses. Now, of course, scientists make speculations and guesses all the time. Sure. That's part of the scientific method. But you can't say that a speculation or a guess is a fact. Hmm. They try to do that. Many times Christians let them get away with it. I try not to let them get away with it. But you know, you look at the, the evolutionary tree, mm -hmm. and you have all of these different branches of the tree coming up from this nice trunk. They have all these diagrams. And if you look at it closely, on every one of those, there are breaks, gaps, if mm -hmm. you would. That's where the missing link is supposed to be. And of course, the problem for them is that they can't find the missing links. Right. I know why they can't find them. They don't exist. They don't exist. They're not there. But here's what they do. They insert their own God of the gaps, magical time in there. And they say, well, the reason we don't find them is, is a lot of time passed and then they just got washed away or somehow. Right. And, and of course, that's all, again, conjecture. Yes. And, it, and it goes into this question, for instance, of how do fossils form? Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, of course, in order to form a fossil, first of all, the living organism has to die. Secondly, it must be rapidly buried by earth or mud and completely cut off from oxygen or it's going to decompose. Hmm. And then thirdly, if the right chemicals are present, they leach into the remains and turn them replacing tissue into stone. So really the question becomes, how long does it take to form a fossil? Okay. And many times people say millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, no, it doesn't. All it takes is the right conditions. Okay. And those conditions do not exist on the earth today. They did sometime in the past, and I'm talking about massive fossilization. Of course, we do see a few fossils forming today, but they're very, very few. So back to the question I mentioned earlier, if there really was a worldwide global flood, like the Bible says there was, then what evidence would you expect as a scientist to find out there left over from a catastrophic event like that? And of course you'd, find, you'd expect to find billions of dead things that have been buried in sedimentary rock layers that had been laid down by fast moving water and you'd expect to find them all over the earth. And what do we find? Billions of dead things, <laughs> like Ken Ham has said many, many times, buried by, you know, fast-moving rotter. Now, explain sedimentary for me. What, what does that mean? Because we hear that term thrown around, you know, uh, oh, all of the rocks that you see, oh yeah, they're, they're sedimentary. What does that mean? Material that had been ripped up and then redeposited in layers and then f reformed into rock subsequent to the event. For instance, igneous rocks are volcanic in nature. And so you look at the, the rocks that are formed by volcanic material or the granites and stuff like that are one type. Sedimentary rocks are layers that have been deposited in water and then formed and cemented later. But the vast majority of rock found on the earth today 
is sedimentary. Absolutely it is. And even secular geologists would admit this. They would say, yeah, it's sedimentary, which means it had to have been transported from point A to point B, laid down mostly by water, right? That's true. Some of it, of course, by air and mm -hmm. wind, but mostly by water. And of course, when you look at all of these layers, they try to talk about radiometric dating and how that proves the world's millions of years old. Let me, let me just address that for just yeah. a second. Radiometric dating is a dating method based on the measurement of radioactive isotopes, parent to daughter products in radioactive decay chains, such as potassium to argon to uranium to lead. Mm -hmm. They're used for the estimation of longer times they apply to igneous rocks from the time of their solidification. Essentially, when the volcanic rock solidifies and hardens, that starts the radiometric clock ticking. Okay. And then finally, isotope concentrations can be measured very, very accurately today. Well, the problem with that is radiometric dating is based on four unprovable assumptions. Mm -hmm. they, they derive these dates assuming the amount of material in the rock or in the, sed the sediment or in the sample, if you would, when it was buried or when it was formed. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no way they can know how much of the parent element, let's say uranium-238, that decays to lead, the daughter element, they, they can't know how much uranium-238 was in this sample a billion years ago when it was buried. They can't know how much lead, the daughter element, was in that sample. Now, they guess. Mm -hmm. And they usually assume that the daughter element amount was zero, mm -hmm. but it's still a guess. No parent or daughter elements were gained or lost in the sample, meaning it laid there for a billion years mm. uh, and never became contaminated. And finally, they assume that the radiometric decay rate for that particular element, in this case 238, has remained exactly con constant for a billion years, that nothing speeded it up or slowed it down. And the problem with that is that all of those are assumptions. You can't prove them. You can't go back and observe that stuff and test it. One of the things that Dr. Austin did years ago after Mount St. Helens erupted is he went there and collected some samples of day site. Now we know when Mount St. Helens erupted. Yeah, 1980. 1980. Okay. He sends some of it off. They radiometric dated at almost a million years old. This freshly erupted. Yes, into and how, how do they, I mean, it, it's less than, you know, 50 years. Yeah. So th that makes radiometric dating highly suspect. Now, mm. let's just go out to Grand Canyon for just a minute, since that's our topic today. You go out to the, the, the western part of the United States, they, they call an area out there called the Grand Circle. It mm -hmm. comprises the area of four states, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico. And they call it the Grand Circle because within that circle, there are 18 national parks and national monuments wow. and a whole bunch more state parks. I've been privileged to have gone out there and looked at personally put eyes on all 18 of these things. Wow. Now, the first time that I went out there, I went out in 1995 with Dr. Uh, John Morris and a number of the ICR scientists. And it was really interesting because you, you, you meet some of these people who are real scientists, mm -hmm. and yet they believe the world's relatively young, 6,000 years. They have their PhDs in these fields. They have studied these things extensively, and they've come away because they don't, they're not stuck in this box of what their professor told them, because they're not stuck in this box of what they were supposed to learn, but they are open to exploring things, 
they study the same rocks and they come away with the conclusion that it is 100% biblically consistent to believe that these things are only thousands of years old. Yep, that's exactly right. Hi, I'm David Reeves, host of Wonders Without Number. Like what you're seeing? You can find so much more on the Creation Superstore. You'll find over a thousand books, DVDs, and other quality resources on origin science, creation, and Bible history. Whether you're looking for nature documentaries, educational books, homeschool resources, or children's videos, we've got it all, so be sure to head over and check it out. Use this special promo code to receive 10% off your first order. And what I like about the fact is that all of these people that I went out there the first time with, they start with God's Word yeah. and say, what does it say in God's Word? And then they go out there and they try to look at the evidence and see if the evidence indeed points to the truth of God's Word. Mm -hmm. And it does. Now, within the creation community itself, there's a number of those scientists who are Bible-believing Christians mm -hmm. who believe that there was a bunch of lakes out there mm -hmm. that were caught back runoff after the flood, and they were held in these lakes, a series of them, don't know for sure, three, four of them, and that after the flood, as the water began melting on the top of the high Rockies, each year the, the snow melt would flow into these lakes until finally they rose to the point where they overtopped the edge of the lake breached, in other words, and then carved a massive canyon. So you're saying the flood took place. Shortly after the flood, all of this water is draining, finding the lowest spot. Well, the lowest spot might have happened to be right there and right there, but as it fills this low spot up, well, then a lake starts to form. The lake starts to form, and as the lake gets higher and higher and higher, eventually, well, if it breached the dam at a yeah. weak spot, right. you've got the Grand Canyon yeah, right there. Or a thin here. spot, yeah. then it would catastrophically erode wow. and carve that. Okay. Now, the other, of course, idea is that, no, it was actually water at the end of the flood as the waters drained off the earth continually, and that carved it. But for Both. my purposes, yeah. and, and, and there's a number, I've made a number of flying trips out there with a small aircraft and have videoed and filmed a lot of the evidence that's out there. And so I know that there's people within the creation community who think it's either one or the other. I happen to think, looking at it from up above, with my own eyes, that the idea of these lakes breaching and then carving the canyon seems to fit with what I see. Understanding that I don't have a PhD in geology, I'm just a guy looking at, at what's out there. Well, both of those ideas involve catastrophic amounts of water that resulted from some of the conditions found at Noah's flood. And those are vastly, both of those ideas are vastly different than the secular opinion that Colorado River over six or seven million, sometimes up to 70 million years slowly, gradually, grain by grain, ate through, a can ate through the rock. And then caused a breach. And of yes. course, when, when, a, when a pond dam breaches, it starts as a little trickle, yeah. and a little faster trickle, and suddenly there's a catastrophic breach. And that's what several of these scientists um, think happened at Grand Canyon. Now, I don't have enough time to, to go into, into great detail here, but, but, but what they teach is that 
there was millions of years. If you walk the rim of the Grand Canyon, the, the South Rim Trail, you will see all of these, these uh, plaques and pieces of rock. And in fact, you'll see embedded down in the, um, the trail itself, these paint gallon paint can size mm -hmm. medallions saying 100 million so forth. And, and they've constructed this imaginary trail of walking back in time and mm -hmm. every meter represents one million oh, wow. years back in time. Well, you see some of these plaques they put up, top layers, 270 million years old. You know, then you see pieces that they've gone down in the canyon and cut. 780. Yeah, and then you see more medallions, 1 billion, 600 million years old and so forth. Then you, they start talking about Vishnu rocks, which are down near the bottom, mm -hmm. and it's 1,750,000,000. <laughs> and then they talk about a period, that, or the area called the Great Unconformity. They say, imagine a time before the canyon's oldest rocks formed, and then they even talk about 1.2 billion years. It's missing from the record. <laughs> I think here's the real short answer. The final medallion in this walk back in time, imaginary walk with the, with the uh, evolutionist, is right here. 4,560,000,000 years ago, that's when this formed. Hmm. I've said for years, they've got a problem with the zeros. Too many zeros on the number. If you go in and just block that out and read it 4,560 <laughs> 4, years ago, uh -huh. there was a great event called Noah's Flood. <laughs> Just remove the zeros, wow. and it fits. Anyway, there's so many more things that we could talk about, but I know we're about out of time. Well, you know, so this is powerful because, again, you've looked at how the radiometric dating methods are based on assumptions, that they can be measured very accurately, but then the assumptions imposed upon those measurements are where the millions and billions of years come from. I was at um, Lee's Ferry, the starting point of many mm -hmm. of the rafts, mm -hmm. uh, the rafting trips down the, the Colorado River there. And uh, I, I happened to come across a, a group of rafters loading up the rafts. Well, I just finished some on-location filming uh, at the area, and so I walked back across the way, and a lady was loading up her raft, and I, I asked her what she was doing. She said, well, I'm getting ready. We're going to go on a 16-day journey down the Colorado oh, wow. River. Uh, well, that's a long one, I said. Mm, I, you know, I don't even know if I could do that, but, but that sounds fun. And she said, oh, it's going to be really good. And then she said, well, what are you doing? I thought, well, this is a good, good opportunity. Yeah. I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm actually doing some on-location filming about how potentially this canyon might have been formed with a lot of water over a short period of time. And she said, um, oh, okay. And she went on to load a raft. So approximately the same time, I see this tall, lanky fellow in my peripheral vision come storming up because he'd been listening to our conversation from oh. behind a Jeep, all right? And he said, uh, did I hear you say that you believe that this canyon formed very rapidly just a short period of time ago? And I said, well, I, I do actually believe that there's a good chance of this based on the biblical record and based on a lot of evidence here. And he said, well, my Ph.D. is in geology, and I'm here to tell you that this canyon formed over the last six million years of the Colorado River, slowly carving this canyon out. And I said, well, I understand you believe that, but is it okay if I ask you a couple of questions? Maybe I can learn something here. He said, well, certainly. I said, well, have we ever seen a canyon being formed as a result of a, a river eroding it out for, you know, six million years? 
And he said, well, of course not. We as a species haven't been around for that long on Earth. Wow. And, and, uh, and I said, well, that's understandable. Well, but could we do an, a test or a simulation in the laboratory uh, to sort of recreate these conditions and try to form a canyon that looks like this over vast eons of time? And he thought about it for a second. He said, you know, no, there's no way we can do that. I said, but you believe that it took six million years or, or more to form? And he said, well, yes, of course I believe that. I said, but you believe it by faith. And he said, no, no. At that point, he realized that what he had just told me was not based on observable, repeatable data. Right. It was not based on the scientific method. It was based on personal, individual belief. Yep. Here's the difference. We actually have the historical record, don't we? We do. Break that down for us. Well, God says in the beginning He created the heavens and the earth. And from that starting point, based on the genealogies of the Scripture, we have, uh, I, I like to call it the, the, the part of the Bible you read at night when you can't go to sleep. So-and-so was so old, he begat so-and-so, and he died, so-and-so, etc. We have those genealogies recorded for us, not once, not twice, but multiple times in both the Old and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And my question is, if the Word of God is inspired, mm -hmm. Why did God think all those so-and-so was so old and he got so-and-so and he died? Why did he think they were so important hmm. as to include them in inspired scripture? Hmm. I think it was because of the fact that it literally draws an unbroken line from Adam all the way to Jesus Christ. Wow. If you've got 15, 1600 from Adam to the flood, and then you've got 4,500 years from the flood to us, mm -hmm. it comes out about 6,000 or so years. David, I, I know we're out of time. Let me just make a mention of one thing. Until this last century, I'm talking about the 1900s, most scientists believed that the Bible was true. And we taught our kids in Scripture. Now, a number of years ago, my dad was pheasant hunting in Nebraska. Kicking through the snow along the swales and edges of cornfield, they came across an old burnout farmhouse. Mm -hmm. All of us standing was the stone fireplace. Hmm. But in front of each side, well, actually each side of the fireplace, there were two piles of burnt out books that obviously were on the sides of the fireplace yeah. when the place burned down. Hmm. And he kicked a few of them and they were all fire damaged, but there was one on the bottom that was not fire damaged. Hmm. He took it home and he kept it and gave it to me a year or so before he died, which is about 10 years ago. And the name of that book was Parley's Universal History, 1837. Wow. That was when it was published, okay? This is before Charles Darwin and the origin of the species and all of that stuff. And you open up that book, and in the forward, the introduction, it says it's good that the young student should study both history and geography, because history is a record of what happened. Mm -hmm. Geography is a record of where it happened. Mm. And then it goes on, the very first chapter you open it up, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, wow. and this wonderful event took place about 6,000 years ago. And it goes on to record all the histories of the people's groups of the earth today from Babel. And it's an incredible book. That's what we taught our young people mm -hmm. back in the 1800s, before all this baloney of Charles Darwin. Well, I submit we need to get back to that today. 
and that's why I appreciate you and the, the you know, the, the, the fact that you've got a, a, a program and a medium that's, that's reaching those young people. Well, thank you so much. And you go out and speak on these issues all the time as well. Give us your website. CanopyMinistries.org and you'll find it's a very simple website and on there you'll find links to both the Institute for Creation Research and to Answers in Genesis and all of the resources that they have. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. I have enjoyed it immensely. Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, as we've seen today, the Bible can be trusted from beginning to end. In fact, the world we see around us makes so much more sense when framed from a biblical perspective. I want to thank you for joining us today on Wonders Without Number. Until our next program, keep looking up. I'm David Reeves. Truly, the heavens declare the glory of God. Hello, I'm David Reeves, host of the TV show Creation in the 21st Century on TBN and the Heavens Declare video series. Each week we talk about breaking discoveries in science which reveal that our Creator, the God of the Bible, has left a pattern of His fingerprints throughout the universe. Engage with other like-minded believers through the Creation Club. This website offers thousands of articles written by scores of authors in multiple languages. Sign up to get our free monthly magazine delivered to your door. Want more? Genesis Science Network is our free 24-7 TV network, reaching millions of people around the world on internet, Roku, Fire TV, and mobile devices. Shop over a thousand books and videos on the Creation Superstore, the world's largest origins-related store. Visit our Wonders of Creation Center and sign up for email updates to have encouraging articles sent straight to your inbox. Like us on Facebook for daily inspiration and education regarding science and the Bible.